Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, talk to today's trailblazers. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Leila Moran. Moran is the Liberal Democrat MP for Oxford West and Abingdon, winning her seat in the 2017 SNAP election. She is the first Member of Parliament of Palestinian descent and the first female Liberal Democrat MP from an ethnic minority background. A former physics teacher, Moran has quickly been dubbed a rising star and is the party's education spokesperson. She has, however, ruled herself out of the current vacancy for a new leader of the Liberal Democrats. Explaining her decision, she said, it's just not the right time, although I have not closed the door on it, perhaps in the future. So, Leila, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Amit's the Tory leadership contest, it almost feels like the Liberal Democrat contest is at harmony and peace in comparison. I think it is, actually, honestly. So I've been asked a few times and you know, people cycle up, who, do you, who are you backing? Who are you backing? And the answer is no one yet, if I need to, because I'm genuinely happy with both. And they're both saying very similar things. They're both very much on, you know, the right lines on party policy and all the rest of it. And it, yeah, it does feel like we're a big happy family compared to the Tories right now. And you uh, almost, as may, perhaps as a sign of Lib Dem modest, modesty, you only have two candidates in the race. I mean, at one point we had 13 in the Conservative contest. I'm surprised. It's that all I, about I, proportions, <laughs> I think. It's all about, and actually, you know, in the end, why have 13, you know, quite interesting but possibly mediocre some of them candidates let's have two excellent candidates instead and you didn't have any of your Lib Dem colleagues sounding sounding you out about whether or not they should run did everyone kind of think these were the two two main ones I think yeah it was it was sort of fairly known for a long time that both of them were were seriously thinking about it so it wasn't a surprise to anyone I think when they both declared now before we get on to politics in general which I'm sure we have plenty of time for what we like to do in this podcast is talk a little bit about what you were doing before you became an MP, in your case. You, so you grew up in Hammersmith, London. Is I was that born fair? there. No, but you travelled a lot. We moved away when I was one. Okay. Yeah, so, we, so you grew up in Hammersmith, age one. Age one. <laughs> yeah, and it was Chiswick. So they had a teeny tiny little flat right off well, that massive main road. Probably really bad in terms of air pollution. And then one dad got a job with the European Commission. And so we up sticks and moved to Brussels. And actually, that was the last time as a family we lived in the UK. And you said growing up, politics was a regular feature at the dinner table. Did you feel political from an early age? Um, s- small P rather than big. And actually more looking at politics from a global perspective. So because dad worked for the European Commission, I didn't know which party he supported until way late in life. I didn't know anything about Is British politics. Down? He's not. Well... He does vote Lib Dem now, but actually he would consider himself a Labour man and he describes himself as such. But because of, you know, mum's background as well, it was actually more international politics that we would talk about rather than anything national. And you mentioned that you travelled around it though and your father was a diplomat for the European Union. Clearly Lib Dems are seen as being rather pro-EU. Yeah, was it any wonder I was a Lib Dem? Like, (laughs) I have to say when I was growing up I probably didn't even know Lib Dems existed at all and it wasn't until much later that I came to that realisation. But now I look back, I'm like, what else was I going to (laughs) be? And what, what different countries did you live in growing up? So when I was one, we moved to Brussels. And then Dad's first posting abroad was actually in Ethiopia in the late 80s. So a lot of people might remember the dictator called Mengistu. And lots and lots of famine going on because of the war with Eritrea. Mum got pregnant with the twins, so I'm the eldest of four. And we moved to Greece, where her family had ended up settling after we left Palestine and then through Jordan and ended up in Athens. Um, so we moved there and then back to Brussels. Then Jamaica, so we moved there when I was 11, and then Jordan, 
by which point I had sort of schooling was as you can imagine from that little a snippet a little bit disrupted so I ended up coming to the UK went to school here and then went to Imperial which is where I did my degree and from there did you harbour political ambitions at an early age not remotely no not at all in fact I remember growing up thinking all I want to do definitely is not to do anything that my dad does and because he was I didn't really understand the difference between sort of an ambassador or a politician or whatever we would always have politicians in our house so I'd sort of grew, grew up with foreign politicians coming to the house for you know events or whatever in the garden but it just never even crossed my mind until much much later in I would say my mid to late 20s when I was doing my master's at that point in education and that was the point where I realized actually maybe I should do this and you had quite a long stint maybe stint is the wrong word as a maths and physics teacher definitely and I would still in some ways I need to sort of remember to take off that hat I've sort of slowly two years in you know we're we're talking I think a couple of days after the two-year anniversary of me being elected I've kind of come to the realization I'm not a teacher anymore I'm now an MP but yeah that's that was very much my first love in terms of in terms of career and it's taken me a while to sort of morph but I don't want to lose that completely I'm still a primary school governor actually so I keep my hand into education. So at what point when you were working in a school did you decide that actually you wanted a different career and you wanted to try and get a seat? Yeah so I started teaching very early so I was just 21 when I started teaching and fell into it completely it was again not something I'd thought of doing I'd done a physics degree at Imperial like many people came home because I didn't have enough money and the local school which was an international school in Brussels just was desperate for a maths and physics teacher so I said yeah let's give it a go absolutely loved it and it was five six years in where I had the question now at the time I was teaching the American system but also the school did the international baccalaureate which is actually my specialty and I had gone to the Jamaican system I had done a levels and GCSEs I'd been in Greece like I my question was very naive why are there so many different systems and what's the best one and through that got really stuck into this country and trying to understand how we've ended up with the education system we have now, but also the huge differences between where you come from and where you go in this country and how that's kind of repeated through education. And that became like the burning fire in me that made me want to actually become an MP, but hadn't picked the party yet. And so I'd done something which is uber geeky, which is I went through all the different websites and all the different policies that I could find from all different parties and actually tried to be very non-tribal. You didn't do one of those online quiz- quizzes? No, not at all, because I don't think there would have been one. I was, and what I was doing was I was comparing what I was learning in my research versus what parties' policies were on education. And I picked the one that was closest, which was the Lib Dems. Thinking at the time, frankly, well, if I want to be an MP and I'm joining the Lib Dems, there's a good chance I might not make it because there aren't that many seats. But actually, I, that was a conscious decision, and I'm so glad I did it that way. And at what time frame are we talking then? How are the Lib Dems doing at the time you decide to do so your party? So this will have been 2007, so right at the very beginning of Nick Clegg, well before that sort of bounce. You um, hadn't reached Clegg mania? Not, at, not remotely. That was during the first time I stood, which was in Battersea. So I was delighted to see it. But at the time, it was very much... a. I joined the party out of principle and boy, now that we're going through things like Brexit, I'm glad I did. And how did you find the selection process? Uh, Because as you say, you stood first 2010 in Battersea and you didn't get that seat. No, and actually I'd, I'd... tried for another seat before that and lost out narrowly to a you know older white gentleman you know and I was like what what am I doing wrong and every time I did it I and then internally internally and I remember just 
it was just heartbreaking. I didn't really understand what, how, what I needed to, and I had a mentor and it was great. Battersea in 2010, then I stood for the London list in 2012, just because, you know, that's how you contribute to the party. But also I wanted to stand in a big seat knowing that Oxford, Western Abingdon was maybe coming up. And separate to that, I'd got a job there. So I thought, I'm just going to put all my eggs in one basket, take this job, try for the selection. If I lose, then at least I'm in an area where I know I kind of want to be for a while and settle down. And, you know, given my background moving around lots, I actually was looking for that at that point in my life. So this is my late 20s and I just really wanted to settle somewhere recognising that at this point London was just too expensive and I wanted to go find somewhere I could be for a while. And you you were selected as a candidate. Mm-hmm. Stiff Late 2012. Very, yeah. So it's, it's lovely because we're all friends now. And selections are always horrible because in so many ways it is like fighting in the family. You love each other really and you're splitting hairs between you. It was not an all-women shortlist seat or anything, but as it happens, it was a really diverse field that was naturally selected by the local party. And I was delighted to, to have won. And I think good contests are important. It's good to have a robust contest where everyone's being tested. What, what kind of questions do you get in a Lib Dem selection process? I've heard oh, many gosh. of the Conservative questions and often I've heard from Conservative MPs they have to veer their answers perhaps more to the right of their mm. real politics because they know that the grassroots tends to be more on the right than perhaps the candidate. Interesting. Um, I was wondering what the dynamic is with the Lib Dem. Ones. Not like that at all. I I think it's interesting. In all the selections I've done, there are some where you just get asked really left field questions and some are just, you know, ridiculous. Like, well, you're a young woman. When do you plan to have children? You know, and, and that even happens in the Lib Dems. Well, I, oh, yeah, a lot. And, you know, and I, I used to be the co-chair of the Parliamentary Association for the Liberal Democrats. And we would get tomes of women saying that this stuff still exists. Now it's less and less, I really hope so, but you get stupid questions What do you like reply that. to that? It's none of your business. Pretty much, yeah. I was like, I don't see how my personal life has anything to do with my ability to be a candidate. Can you just judge me on the same basis as the men? And it's very interesting because a lot of those questions come from older women and not always the people who you'd think. So it still exists and it still needs challenging everywhere. Now, you... But you did get selected to be the candidate for Oxford West at Abingdon and you entered the race in 2015 as a Lib Dem candidate against Nicola Blackwood, yeah. didn't get it. But then opportunity arises when Theresa May calls the snap election That's in 2017. Right. <laughs> and I suppose after 2015, were you very disappointed? I was devastated. So we had lost and- Oxford West and Abingdon by just 167 votes in 2010 and no one had seen it coming because it was a point with Clegmania and everyone thought that the Lib Dems were on the up. So to take that... And then in 2015, post-coalition, of course, nothing to do with me, Gov, you know, and we lost by nearly 10,000, having put in a massive campaign. It was just devastating. And at that point, I thought to myself, well, okay, referendum came and that woke me up again. And I, I think, honestly, I spent probably about a year feeling a little bit depressed after that 2015 election. It really felt grossly unfair. And I can't imagine what it must have been like for my colleagues who had lost their seats and all the rest of it. Uh, because you felt like you weren't personally involved with the coalition or that the Lib Dems were getting a bad deal and how they were both. seen. A bit of yeah. both. So on the one hand, there were, there were decisions that 
party took at that point that I just didn't understand. And, you know, the big T word, tuition fees, why the hell didn't we abstain? I still don't totally understand the conversations, why that happened and, and why they thought that it would be a good idea yes, to do an anything otherwise. Absolutely. And, you know, I think now we're sort of definitely shown that we're past that. But I, I just didn't understand why we were having to deal with that on the ground when there was another way that they could have happened. But equally, things like, you know, we'll talk about education, I'm sure, I hope, but, you know, the pupil premium was literally one of the best policies to come out of coalition government full stop in terms of social mobility. And we weren't getting the recognition for that. Same for apprenticeships, same for raising the tax threshold. You know, you now hear a Conservative Party saying it was all our idea. Well, actually, it wasn't. It wasn't in their manifesto. It was in ours. And so it was just really unfair that we were going around on doorsteps talking about these great policies and no one... No one wanted to hear it because actually what the Tories had done was run a blinding campaign, blinding, and had found that one heartstring issue, that, po- that picture of Miliband in Salmon's pocket the week before the election just killed us. And it was so interesting. I remember when Theresa May called the snap and I was, it was around Easter, wasn't it? And I was just, I was really ill. So I, by this point, I was running, helping teachers sort of teach students getting prepared for exams in a social enterprise in Oxford. And I was just really, really ill in bed. And I got a text from my dad saying, she's just called an election. At which point I said, don't be so stupid. <laughs> no way. And then I got another text from my campaign manager saying, you need to get back to Oxford. And I was like, oh, bollocks okay (laughs) here we go and I honestly honestly hand on heart did not think we'd do it all in one go but hey it's amazing how life intervenes and it works out sometimes and did you get to know Nick of the Blackwood at all yes so we know we we uh, Western Abingdon camaraderie is like in that kind of so I think certainly in 2015 it was tough and you know she was here and I was there and we didn't see each other very much except at hustings and but I have always had respect for her and even and the way that you know we've always treated each other with utmost respect and it's been since she's been elevated to the lords she came up to me in the corridor when a couple of days afterwards and she said you know what I'm really happy we're both here and that's kind of how I feel too she had a huge amount of respect in the constituency obviously pretty different politics but you know, in the end, there are humans behind all of this. And I think it's really important to get to know them. And then entering Parliament, it was clearly something you'd wanted to do for quite a long time, you'd had disappointments. What was that experience like? What surprised you about Parliament? Oh, God. It's how chaotic it was. I was honestly expecting some kind of onboarding process that was, you know, structured and helpful and I by this point I had been working for a few years as I said in the social enterprise so I was used to being quite entrepreneurial and you know how to set up a team and how to manage people and all of that stuff I was really shocked that there just wasn't any training for that kind of thing you're just sort of thrown into the deep end and you have to draw on all of your resources to do it and so thank god I had been through that period of being in a business where I learned how to do this and it was a small business so I you know was in on budget discussions and hiring people and all of that stuff I honestly don't know how MPs who don't have that experience do it and I think it explains partly why there is such a huge disparity between what MPs offer in terms of the customer service experience of what it's like to contact your MP I take that really really seriously and you know most of my staff is in the constituency we Actually, I was looking at our numbers this morning just out of curiosity, and we've reached nearly 20,000 cases in the two years that I've been elected. That was really, really important for me to start up. And the other thing that surprised me was actually Grenfell. 
So Grenfell Tower happened that week that we were all elected. And at this point, I don't have staff. And I'm just looking at these emails building and building and building and building and building. And I just couldn't see. It felt like a fog, a fog of people. Help, shout, you know, this is... And in that moment, I realised how important that job is. Whilst I can't... New backbencher, what am I going to do? Actually, people wanted me to respond and take that case up. And so I have always thought about that if someone contacts me about something no nothing's too small nothing's too big if it's not in my brief doesn't mean I am restricted from doing something about it my job is to respond to them and so I end up doing quite a lot in the house which I really enjoy and how have you found the chamber because I remember in one of your early appearances mm. in parliament you challenged Theresa May on childcare and I think what you could say heckled yeah in response by a lot of Tory MPs so I was wondering what that experience was like. Yeah, so it was quite funny just because it wasn't so much the heckling. I never for a second questioned what I was saying. And I remember standing up and it was the first time I'd had a PMQ. I'd done, a, I think, a UQ before that. So the speaker, an urgent question. So the speaker at this point, I was sort of on his radar and he picked me at the end. So I didn't know it was coming. And I just thought I'd got a bit of procedure wrong. You know, like when you can't refer to someone in the first person, esoteric, stupid things like that, that have really encourage people to listen to us in the chamber, right? And I just thought I got a piece of procedure wrong. And so I sort of sit down and Vince was, Vince was very nice. He was like, no, 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 don't worry. And then the, the speaker intervened. And it wasn't until afterwards that actually other people had got hold of it and said, this is misogynistic, da, 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 da. And I've always been anti the adversarial nature of the chamber. I think it actually isn't how most of Parliament works. And I wish people could see some of the more calm stuff that happens behind the scenes. And it just, you know, all I could think to myself is I was a teacher and I would just would not have been proud of my class had they behaved that way. <laughs> and how have you found the social side of Parliament? Uh, I think there is an image of Parliament as somewhere where I, I suppose to get ahead, you have to stay out late mm. in certain bars, socialising. I know some people say you don't need to do that now because you have WhatsApp. <laughs> There's various groups. You can now gossip from your house. Yeah. Um, how has that side been? Yeah, so I mean, at first, it's just the most incredible place to be. And there, there's nothing like the awe of sitting on the terrace and having a drink. And, you know, that's amazing. So I think in the first year, I did it just mainly to like bring friends and family or people who'd help me get elected just to treat them. The Liberal Democrats, because we were 12 and I guess now 11, it's easier for us, I think. You know, we have to work really closely together. All of us are front bench spokespeople for something. And we do try and really make an effort to, to go and socialise with each other. So we do do that. But I do watch it. And I remember not since being an MP, but earlier on when I was selected, realising it's just so easy to get home after a fraught day and have a quarter bottle of wine and just do that every night. And I made a decision a few years ago, just you got to watch it. But that still happens. And I, I will make a confession. I started smoking again because of Brexit. And it's terrible. And I, I constantly try and quit. And at the moment, I'm having a quitting day and it's going really well. But it's just the stress. It's the stress of it. And what was interesting is, I've, you know, a few times I've been out on the terrace and there are a few other MPs who've made the same confession. Brexit has made us all so fraught that we're picking up some of our bad habits again. So so a, this a, is my public. <laughs> I am quitting again. Everyone, please help me. There's a Brexit smoking <laughs> it's, okay, it's a little bit. <laughs> and when it comes to your friends in Parliament, I was wondering, do you, do you have any friends who are Tory? Yeah, absolutely. So I sit on the Public Accounts Committee. And uh, through that, I've, yeah, you make sort of all sorts of 
alliances of people. So someone who sort of comes to mind also a 2017 intake, Julian Keegan from Chichester, I think, is her seat. And yeah, we just got on on the Public Accounts Committee. We did loads of homelessness stuff together. We brought a debate to the House together. And yeah, occasionally we'll sit and have a drink and a goss. And yeah, it was great. Now, looking at politics, scrutiny in politics, and also the leadership election, I just want to touch on, I mean, quite quickly, and I suppose, I don't mean this mm-hmm. in the wrong way, you impart because you're in a small party. Yeah. As soon as you entered it, you quite quickly were tipped to someone to watch. And people were saying this could be a, a rising star, someone for the Lib Dem leadership. Now, you have ruled yourself out of that. I was wondering, what is it about that which put you off going going for the going job? Going for it this time. So, I mean, it first, the first time it happened was when the time that Vince won. And it was literally days after I was elected. And people were saying, you should run for leader of the party. I'm like, you are effing crazy I don't even have an office what are you talking about and I think that was the moment where I realized it's not about me it's about other people projecting stuff onto you and then two years later I've definitely you know finding my feet and I I kind of with the fire of Brexit and everything that's going on and the shenanigans in the house I feel my my apprenticeship is over so it's not necessarily that I'm not ready but I did have a good think about what it is that I want to do And because of my background, education and that brief is just so incredibly important to me. And, you know, we're starting to do some incredible things. I've set up a mission to look at the whole vision of why we educate in this country. I've got these big lofty aims and I really want to focus on those. But also, I love being a backbencher. And I think a lot of people don't really necessarily see that it's the little things that you do for people close to the ground. And I'd like to think that I wouldn't drop that if I ever did decide to become leader but the fact is you're never going to be as close to it and enjoy it quite as much so I haven't ruled it out but I did think long and hard about it under quite a lot of pressure from the outside it never came from me it was always that way around but it's just not right and that's okay and I suppose with a job like leader of a party scrutiny does arrive as part of that and I want to just touch on obviously something that happened earlier this year yeah. when you admitted to and correct me if I get it wrong yeah. but you admitted to having slapped your boyfriend in a row over a computer cable at a party conference gathering yeah. in, in Glasgow back in 2013 and both of you were arrested neither was charged and it seemed to be something that you volunteered the information yeah and I was wondering what prompted you to do that did you feel as though you need people were going to write about that did you feel as though you just wanted to be honest Um, it was that it was so what the timing of it was we had just had spring conference and I it happened and it was just like it wasn't actually obviously over a computer cable it was the fact that we were breaking up and these fights are always about something deeper aren't they and I wanted to quash some rumours that I had heard at this year's spring conference and I've heard in the house from other parties that I've gained a reputation for just being straightforward and so I wanted to just be straightforward so what was nice about it though was that he and I did it together and so the statement I released on Twitter was you know he signed it off too and it was our story to tell and I don't think I'd have told it in the same way or at all actually if he hadn't had his permission and I really wanted that from him so I'm happy it's out. And it's interesting, like the go drug stuff that's come up this week. I think people are happy to hear about people having a past and what lessons do you learn and all the rest of it. And I've been really open and honest about my, uh, I had a stomach 
operation to deal with my obesity. I've had mental health issues and I've spoken about those. I think people want to know that people have had a life, but what they want to also know is that, you know, where are your values? And one of the really important values to me is open and transparency and honesty. And just on that incident with your um, former partner, I just wondered, do you think it would have been a different reaction had a man admitted that mm. with, a, with a female partner? I don't know. It's impossible to say. The fact is, like, I'm not sure it's a man-woman thing. I think it's more a question of it was a ending of relationship thing. I think the bigger question is, you know, how is it right that people are always talking about this and delving into people's lives and whatever? And actually, my view is there is a new type of politics where people kind of do want to hear people's backstories. And through that, you can then talk about other stuff and you sort of gain permission to, you know, be talking about things that are big if you don't show who you are, then why will anyone listen to you? So I think that's the other, that's the question. Yeah, and we're seeing, I suppose, in the Tory leadership contest, lots of questions probing into yeah. past, as you mentioned, the Michael Gove thing. Do you think in general, greater transparency about politicians' early life is a good thing? Or do you think it's ultimately at their discretion? Politicians do have that? I personally think it's a good thing. And I personally think and I've seen this with, in particular, the bariatric operation I had. So I was properly obese all through my childhood and especially at university. And it was something that I did for myself, for health reasons, not really for looks. I was really mostly worried about cancer and diabetes. And that was the reason I did it. And after I spoke about it, which was a little bit, not exactly on a whim, but I didn't sort of plan it. It just came out in a question, in any questions, I think it was. And then I got contacted by a whole host of people saying, no one talks about this. And thank you for sharing your story. And I think when you've got a public position, you have an opportunity there to be a bit real. And I don't think when I was growing up, I heard politicians being real. And therefore, you just think they're these perfectly formed human beings or they're these demons. And actually, most people are somewhere in between. <laughs> most people have stuff they're not proud of and some people... And actually, it's not about what you've been through. It's about how you got through it. I hope that what these stories do is encourage people who have had a past or a life or whatever and have had these issues to come forward and say they can also be politicians too. And actually, I'd argue, if you have had a life, you ought to be in there because I'm not sure everyone in there... If you lead your whole life thinking you're going to be an MP and therefore don't live, I'm not sure how good you are at you know, writing legislation that's actually going to work for real people. Now, bringing the podcast to its final part, just a few quick fire questions. That, okay. That's okay. We'll see how we go. So when it comes to the Lib Dems, we saw the party do very well at the European elections. And I think just before those, we saw Change UK suggest that they weren't going to do a pact with the Lib Dems mm -hmm. because they thought they were going to become the party of Remain. That clearly hasn't worked out for them. Would you be happy for any member of Change UK or the recently separated Change yeah. UK so so that all the original Change UK members to, yeah. to join the Lib Dems so yeah so it's, there's I think, a bit of a mix there you have some former yeah. Labour politicians you have some former Tory you have Anna Subri he obviously served in a Tory government that's so right. the absolute honesty is I think it kind of depends on the person a lot of them I don't know because I just haven't been hanging around the Westminster bubble for most of my life so I don't really know them there are a few like Joan Ryan, I think, headed up the No to AV campaign for Labour. And I, 
you know, electoral reform for Liberal Democrats is pretty up there in terms of things that we care about. I would seriously question if she did want to join the Lib Dems or has she had an epiphany now that she's in? And are people allowed to change their minds and are their values allowed to morph over time? Absolutely. So the honest question is, sorry, the answer to the question is, I don't know. But yes, a lot of them I have huge amounts of respect for. Um, Now, you may not answer this, but... Ed Davey or Joe Swinson I honestly don't know no both actually I'd love if they job shared guys job share go on do it it'd be great in 2010 you are quoted as suggesting you thought a coalition with the Tories might have some possibilities in it mm. now if if we have a general election and the Tories fail to get a majority but they're the largest party do you think your party could consider an arrangement like that again oh, honestly at this point for two reasons one Let's face it, the last time we did that didn't really work out very well, did it? So we'd have to have some quite clear reasons for why we did it this time. But also, look who's likely to be leading the Conservative Party. If it's someone who wants to deliver not just Brexit, but the hard Brexit that you know we are absolutely adamantly against, there's no way in hell I'd think that we would go there. Do you think Theresa May is a feminist? Do I think Theresa May is a feminist? No. Feminist is as feminist does. And I think there were, whilst later on, she ended up doing quite a lot on domestic violence, women and girls and that kind of thing. If you look at a lot of the policies that she's put in in the Home Office that disproportionately affected women, I would struggle to understand how she could call herself that or we could call her that and also give her that label. And finally, one question we ask everyone on this podcast, which is, what is the worst advice you've ever been given? You know what? I was thinking long and hard about this. And I honestly don't remember because I tend to ignore bad advice. The one I do remember is good advice I ignored. And recently, about a year ago, I was at a rock club and my sister said, don't go in the mosh pit. And I did. And I ended up being hit in the head and had to go to the hospital and had stitches. So that is a time when I really should have listened to someone's good advice. The best advice you've been given. That's right. (laughs) Thanks, Lena. Thank you. 